Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. I'm Natalie Pearson. Here at the University of Sydney, we have an amazing new museum. The Chowchak Wing Museum opened its doors to the public in November 2020 and is home to the university's rich and diverse collections of modern and contemporary art, natural history, historic photography, indigenous objects, the Tin Sheds poster collection, antiquities from Egypt, Greece, the Middle East, and so on and so on. Of the estimated 56,000 objects in the museum's collection, a select few hail from Southeast Asia. Today we're going to be talking with one of the senior curators at the museum, Dr Jude Philp about the incredible birds of paradise found only in New Guinea and surrounding islands, and the trade in these birds for the Asian and European markets. Jude is Senior Curator of the Maclay Collections at the Chowchak Wing Museum. She's interested in stimulating research into the collections and increasing the purposefulness of museum holdings through exhibition, research and events. Her current research is in the world of British New Guinea and the 19th century practice of natural history for museums. Jude, welcome and thanks for joining us. In my introduction just now, I mentioned that you are the Senior Curator of the Maclay Collections. What are the Maclay Collections and how do they fit into the Chowchak Wing Museum? Uh, the Maclay Collections are, um, and I have to correct a figure, I think I sent you a missing naught. It's around 500,000 objects. 500,000? And that's because 300,000 of them are insects from the Maclay Collection that start in the 1750s. So that's, that's our greatest legacy, our really sort of treasure in the Maclay collections is the insects. It's also the collection that has the greatest geographic diversity because it's at the time of European expansion and colonial endeavour. So you really get a lot of insects from everywhere across the whole world. Fabulous. Quite exciting. <laughs> but as well as that, we have ethnographic objects, which are the objects made by Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders, Pacific Islanders, Timorese and other Indigenous peoples, I guess we would say today. Um, a very large collection of historic photography, around 80,000. Um, scientific instruments, largely drawn from the university's own work. And a lot of other things like the cases and the furniture that the museum has to house all of those collections are also part of our collection because they themselves are historically interesting. So uh, when I think of the Maclay Museum in its original iteration here at the University of Sydney, I think of those beautiful 19th century arched ceilings and the big timber cabinets and the taxidermied animals. Um, are we seeing that in the new Chachakwing Museum as well? You certainly are. We managed to get 16 of the Maclay cases across. It was something that everybody agreed was really important in order to Consider the legacy of having this kind of material that really devastated rainforests in New South Wales because they're red cedar. And also America's redwood forests, which were very cheap at that time, and so the big timber pieces all come from American redwood, which was cheaper then, but obviously is another legacy of this kind of collecting. So we have those cases, and in many cases they have animals from the Maclay Collection in the Natural Selections Exhibition and in Object Art Specimen. They also house the other aspect of Birds of Paradise and things that we have, which is our books. So we have a quite an interesting collection of very specialist natural history and ethnography books that take you into the collections in ways that you otherwise couldn't. 
Mm. Must be very exciting to be bringing all of these collections into new conversations in the new space, I would imagine. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So we're here to talk about the Birds of Paradise, which you just mentioned, and I have visited the Chao Chakwing Museum and seen one of these Birds of Paradise on display in one of these astonishing timber cabinets that you've just mentioned. How many Birds of Paradise are there in the collection and how did they come to be part of the collection? So uh, Birds of Paradise sort of have a weird place in the Maclay collection and part of that is because of the Australian Museum. So the Maclay family were all during the time of the collections, were all trustees of the Australian Museum. They worked with the curator at that time, purchased specimens, donated and knew what the breadth of that collection was. The Australian Museum really started collecting Birds of Paradise in about the 1870s, which is also when William John Maclay starts to collect in other areas beyond entomology. And they're going to the same places. So we have around 30 birds of paradise from Papua New Guinea, Aru Islands, Indonesian archipelago, and another 30 rifle birds, which are the only bird of paradise that lives in Australia, north of the Atherton Tablelands, about 60 birds of paradise altogether. That gives you a sense of we've got 30 of one kind of bird and 30 of a few different kinds of birds. There are 41 different species of birds of paradise. And this was a time in the 1870s also when they didn't actually know that yet. They were still trying to work out what was and what wasn't there. Um, so Maclay said he was interested in brown birds. He didn't want the flashy ones because they were what was really getting acquired and purchased. And if you're a, a real taxonomist, you often hear this phrase in their writing about the smaller brown birds and what I'm interested in, not the flashy things that people are getting. That reminds me of um, archaeologists, for example, or art historians who are not interested in the Chinese blue and white ceramics, but they're interested in all the, the green and the brown stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to show that you're a real specialist. So we don't have an enormous amount. Um, probably the, the most important bird of paradise thing that we have is an egg, which was the first egg of Paradise Regiana from the Fly River the first egg that was ever collected for scientific purposes from one of that species, <laughs> which seems like a very strange thing to say, oh, we've got this. But in scientific terms, that's quite an important thing to do. Um, can I just ask you a question? You said that these collections were being um, acquired in the 1870s and you said that the collectors didn't really know the differences between all the birds because they can look very different and still be birds of paradise. Is that right? They've got a couple of problems. One was they simply just hadn't gone very many places and part of that is because in the Indonesian archipelago where the Europeans first came to buy spices and trade in woods and then find birds of paradise very exciting, people really controlled their trade. So um, I think it's in 1521, uh, Portuguese come out and they're greeted by the Sultanate of Tidor, who says that at Bacan they wanted the King of Spain to have these two birds as a gift. They're both male birds of paradise. Now, zoom forward 200 years, Alfred Russell Wallace, who writes a whole book about birds of paradise but sees very few of them in the 1850s, is at Halmahera and not able to find them. So in one sense you've got the sultanate who control the traders who then have networks to be able to acquire things and deliberate purchases and sellers because you have to control your trade. 
and a trade that is able to be controlled for over 200 years. That's really just after Wallace's period that people start to just say, well, no, I'm just going to go in with my guns and see what I can see. And disrupt this controlled trade. And disrupt that. That's part of the reason. Then in what is now Papua New Guinea, really hadn't had very much visitation from Europeans except for small islands on the outside with whalers and so on. So it's only really from the 1860s that Europeans start to get interested in Papua New Guinea. Um, and it takes them from 1860 to 1935 to know that the highlands exist. So it's rugged, difficult territory, basically, that's really hard to work out. And that's where a lot of the birds of paradise live is inland in the mountainous areas. The other problem is that birds of paradise can create donkeys, if you like. Ah, this is what I was getting to because they they breed, is that right, with each other and create these donkeys, as you call them, so they're not fertile and they look quite different from anything else. Yes. Is that right? So they're just collecting male birds of paradise, which are the colourful ones. Then as Iredale, even in the 1930s from the Australian Museum, got sucked into this idea that these were all new species. Oh, my gosh, that is so confusing. And really um, it shows you how, how difficult it must have been to understand them from a scientific perspective and put them in structures that could be understood when you've got these donkeys appearing, as you call them. Yes, and they don't actually know about that for quite some time. So it's repetition is part of the way that the scientific world built up their knowledge of the birds. But the real change came with personalised hunting methods where a single person could observe a bird in its habitat. Once you're there in the habitat of the birds, you've got what are called in Motu as a rough translation, dancing trees, maera, which are the grounds for the lek dancers that Birds of Paradise are famous for. And they just turn themselves inside out and do these riotous dances and the females also do certain kinds of response dances I guess and they're brown and very plain looking. So if you're there you can see what the majority looks like and you might see a stranger that's in there and then you might even have the nouse to ask someone locally. Fancy that. (laughs) Some people did. Um, So yeah it must have been very difficult because the sensation of being able to say this is a new bird is something that, you know, is one of those exciting moments for any field work in the biological world. Um, but to then have to bring back that control to looking at museum collections, seeing in them if the species has been represented and doing that when you don't have photographs and easy access, you have to wait months and months for the letters to go back and forwards, then you start to get by the 1900s, a sort of more knowledgeable group of people. And by the 30s, when they go into the highlands, people are no longer really being stumped by those donkeys as they were previously. Mm, Okay. Um, Before we turn to the European interest in the birds of paradise in terms of objects of trade, um, can you tell us about local perspectives on the birds of paradise and what people in New Guinea used the birds for? In a very basic way, I'd say ceremony, but as anybody listening to Southeast Asia Centre podcast would know, that is a really big word. (laughs) All you need to do to complicate it further is say that it's ritual ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd say and said that while you could classify everything that people do as ceremonial in relation to the birds, 
Those people who live in places where the bird's habitat is tend to have ceremonial and non-ceremonial engagements which are broadly based around ecology. Their dances and rituals will include the songs of the birds, the ways that they dance, suggestions of those kinds of things and wearing the plumes themselves, but also mimics of their actions and other things. And this is not just descriptive, it's full of really, really detailed information and knowledge, which is quite similar to what we might write in a scientific point of view, but not in written form. Whereas someone like the Sultan of Tidor, who's grown up in a Muslim tradition, will not be using them from that kind of local ceremonial sense, but more as a wealth object, as something that is a triumph and as an immeasurable beautiful thing that is often stated to be godly in purpose. So like Europeans call them paradise birds, Malays called them dawatia, God's birds. So you have these ways of sort of birds as reflections of the greatness of God or birds as reflections of the greatness of the birds, I guess, would be the two different ways of very, very broadly characterising the different ways people use them. Could you tell us how sustainable these practices were in New Guinea and and also in terms of this Asian trade in the birds as well, this broader Asian trade beyond New Guinea? It's only really since the turn of this century that scholars have been looking again at the histories of the Arafura Sea, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean and the places where all that meets up and reworking those histories better. Um, So Pam Swaddling, who in the 1980s wrote a fantastic book, unraveled the history at that point, which was really we know from at least a 1,000 years ago when a metal drum was found with a symbol of bird of paradise that in the Malay archipelago that Chinese traders obviously didn't just know about birds of paradise. They knew enough about them to have put them into metal works. And so they've been traded for a very long time internationally. Locally, um, they're also traded for a very long time. So one of the markers, I guess, of PNG trade would be that when Australians first went into the highlands in the 1930s, they saw people wearing these magnificent pearl shells, and I think you saw one in the exhibition as well, and they're pearl shells that came from the coast. These shells had worked their way up and down the coast and one of the things that would have been returned for them is birds of paradise. So they're really going everywhere and post-1930s people in PNG start to take advantage of the new trade routes. So New Britain Kiaps who are taken into the police force who might be working up in the highlands will take new and exciting birds that they hadn't seen before back to their places where there are birds of paradise but just different sorts. So you have a different kind of trade where people are looking also at the new and the exciting novelty, which is part of the presentation of birds of paradise from a person point of view in Papua New Guinea of these aesthetic wonders that dance and move and stimulate ideas. Um, But you also get this starting of trade in different ways but following from older trade lines. So a really, really long history of trade in male birds of paradise. I think that's really interesting how they point to the relationship between the coast and uh, the highlands as well, particularly when coupled with the the shell that you're talking about, the pearl shell. Um, 
So despite you said a thousand years of um, being traded and hunted, it wasn't until the arrival of Europeans in New Guinea that these birds really faced the threat of extinction, and particularly between the 17th and 19th centuries. Um, So how did Western scientific study and, of course, fashion trends change the nature of the trade in birds of paradise, um, birds of paradise feathers, from something that was sustainable, I suppose, to something that was far more extractive? For most of the time of the pre-19th century, the trade was able to cope with European interest. It was in Europe, like in Indonesia, a highly controlled thing. If you look at the history of Bird's Paradise in the exciting Dutch masters paintings and other sorts of really grand visualisations of paradise, Bird's Paradise moved from being flying through the air without their feet because they didn't even know that they had feet because of the way that people prepared them in New Guinea Um, to being on the ground and you'll have some artists who are able to depict them on the ground with legs because they've got access to a royal cabinet and somebody else of the same era who can't. And that really sort of continues along for quite some time until the early 1800s when you start to get a greater definition of what scientific research was and how to achieve it from a natural history point of view, as well as greater wealth to be able to go and travel and to just do natural history as opposed to it being an adjunct to other work like spice, slaves and similar things. Um, So by the 19th century, scientists were eager to really tell the entire life history of an animal, the natural history of an animal. So that meant everything from birth to death and it meant male and female and it meant nests and eggs, a complete description If you just think in the top of your head, in the next 30 seconds, can you name 10 museums? You probably can. I probably could, but I think I have an advantage. (laughs) But for our listeners, um, I encourage you to think of 10 museums in the next 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you just think of that, then that's where these birds are all going out to and they're being traded between museums. There's a new trade that starts. From the research I've done, I think that that was one of the key problems that led to issues for Birds of Paradise because if you think before 19th century, you've got a long-standing trade which is international and which at various times have had heat spots. So when Arabic cultures first come to Indonesia, there was probably another heat spot then and they got traded in the same way as they did to Spain. But collecting the females means that you've lost the breeders and birds of paradise tend to not live together and they tend not to nest together. So it's the females that bring up the young chicks. They don't have a lot of eggs at once. They'll have one or two. So once you start to collect a nest or an egg or a female, you're starting to decimate the species in a different kind of way. And I'm not a biologist, so I don't know the ramifications of this from a biological point of view, but it would seem logical to me that that would be a problem. And then the next problem arises by the late 19th century and into our own with the devastation of ecological places. So really today, if you look up extinction, birds paradise, they'll mainly be about habitat loss. And that's the thing that really is driving devastation. And that's neither science nor trade. It's a different kind of commercial endeavour that's we know everywhere is causing real disruptions. Yeah. Well, you've said that birds of paradise are among the earliest animals to have the inglorious honour of legal protection against their trade. But despite this legal protection, 
there is still illegal trade happening even today. What are people doing to try and limit or prevent the illegal trade in birds of paradise? So for many people who live with birds of paradise, they've got as much reason and real want to make sure that these birds continue. They are in some cultures ancestral, in other cultures personal, in other places metaphorically so important that to see the devastation would be unbearable. So it's really problematic, I think, for mainland New Guinea peoples who in both countries... Both countries being Indonesia in Papua and um, Papua New Guinea. um, Where local people have very little voice and power. So if the government wants to put in a mine somewhere and they will do the usual kinds of possibly intimidating processes like offering large amounts of money to people, offering, you know, we can move you all to this place, it'll be the same, whatever happens. It hasn't seemed to be a very successful process for local peoples and you see that at the end of mining cycles or mid-mining when reading the newspaper protests about the way that mining has happened. That disjunct is, I think, for everyone who lives in New Guinea and who looks after them. Uh, So they can't do very much about the habitat loss apart from try and reach out to international speakers and work with government agencies. There are stories that you can read about in both West Papua and in Papua New Guinea of the usefulness of tourism. I personally remember David Attenborough going into Highlands Lek ground with his guides and being shown this and he just floored after decades of working in natural history the first time he had seen. And that has helped spark a slow tourism in that kind of way, tourism which is quite expensive to organise and develop, but similar to the tourism that the 19th century scientists were really going to. It's five or six people who are personally guided to a place to see something that you will never see anywhere else. And that development of tourism, the development of lek ground, so one of the things that people do not all over the um, whole region but in some areas is to develop dancing tree grounds because they're plants. So you plant them and the birds slowly, might be the next generation, might come to them. So planting trees, encouraging uh, the growth, helping to make people aware, tourism, they're all different strategies that people have. At the end of the day, you still have that great problem of what might be small money to you is big money to me. And if it means my child's going to be educated, it's a really difficult choice. Before we finish, um, I just wanted to point out that you've got this new publication coming out in 2021, a chapter called Circulations of Paradise or How to Use a Specimen to Best Personal Advantage. And it's going to be in a book called Mobile Museums, Collections in Circulation. How is the Chachak Wing Museum using the Birds of Paradise in its collection to best advantage? At the moment, it's really a small introduction fighting its way amongst all of the other splendours. <laughs> um, but we do have object-based studios in the museum and that's where people from across the university who lecture or teach have PhD groups, study groups and others um, can work with us to select a group of objects to look at and to really understand from their material point of view. And I think that's where the Birds of Paradise, which are both in our collection, the majority of them are study skins. They're the reference skins for scientific purposes. So we don't generally exhibit them because they need to be protected 
Um, so some of those could come out from time to time, but the other mounted birds, I think, would be easily called out to think about the kinds of histories that emerge from these birds when you start to investigate. Where do they live? How did somebody get to there? What did they do to get to there? When was that collected? How was that possible? There are just so many questions that tumble out once you get to see them. And even in terms of how they were labelled, whether they are labelled as coming from Indonesia, which is probably most unlikely because that was not a country that existed at the time they were collected, or whether they are labelled as being collected from New Guinea, I suppose, or from the specific part of the highland where they were collected, for example. So thinking about this history of collection labels as well and how those labels can help us understand how the world was framed or understood at that time. I think most museums, if they have bird of paradise specimens, would have one or two from the Aru Islands. And our labels just say Aru. If you don't investigate that geography, you don't recognise that Aru might look like an island if you stand back from the map long enough, but it's actually a really intricate set of smaller islands linked by waterways with a very dense jungle population, a very dense population of particular kinds of birds of paradise. So you've got just these magical, it's like opening boxes. It's just, oh, look, (laughs) there's something else. And the geography is one of those things. Jude, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us. It's such an incredible resource, this new Chowchakwing Museum that we have at the university. And I really, you know, I love the beautiful display cabinets and I really am so excited to talk to you today about the Birds of Paradise in the collection and how they can be used to think about um, Asian and European um, trade and markets and fascinations and um, scientific approaches. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalie. It's great. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. Brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.